Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And we have not one, not two, but three special guests this week. So uh, feel free to introduce yourselves. Uh, this is Andrew Carter. Hello. Dave O'Leary again. Nice to see everybody again. Ryan? Ryan Zufriden, but call me Ryan Z for short. All right. Um, so, KISS comes off their most successful arena tour in years, largely propelled by the hit single Forever. Uh, there is a period of relative inaction and they are asked to do a song for the soundtrack of the sequel to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. They choose to do a somewhat rewritten cover of the Argent song, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, and they choose to work with Bob Ezrin again uh, for the first time since The Elder. And that goes so well, they get along so well, they decide to make an entire album together. Uh, they spend, depending on how you look at it, if you wanna count the time they, they go into the studio to do the song for Bill and Ted, about a year in various studios in Hollywood working on this record. And um, just a quick list here, Rumbo Recorders, Track Records, Cornerstone Recorder, Ocean Way, Acne Recording, The Enterprise, and A&M. So this was not a cheap record to make. <laughs> um, if every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Hot in the Shade came under a lot of criticism for uh, them using the demos and being of somewhat subpar sound quality. This is by far indisputably the best sounding uh, no makeup record sonically. And that owes a lot to uh, the production techniques of Mr. Bob Ezrin. Um, anything you guys want to say about the album in general? This was a real statement of intent by the band, um, the biggest one in a decade. I agree with you, man, 100%. It was, I, I think uh, that's when that album came out, that's exactly how I felt about it. They, 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 they really started to soften me as a fan, starting in about, about Crazy Nights. Um, and this really kind of hit me hard in a good way. You know, hard where it should have been. Uh, where we were seeing before the let's put the X in the sex and things like that that started to lose track of what I thought the essence of the real kiss was to me as a fan. And this was, a, this was to me, a return to form in a lot of ways. Yeah, this was the album that made me feel like they still had something to say. Because at this point, I was pretty much, I'm done with this band. I don't want to, I'm not going to buy any more albums. I'm not going to. And then I heard Unholy and I was like, wow, that's, that's really good. Um, so I was, it definitely made me pay more attention to them again. Uh, at least realize that, you know, they had brought their A game back. They weren't just phoning it in, it seemed like. 
And I, I think that, again, it, it sounds like, a, they sound like a band, again, which thankfully it is, is on this record. And also, too, it's cool to see that, you know, Gene sort of came back as, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, Prince of Darkness um, and established his presence again in the band. It was great to see that. And I think just sonically, you know, not even songwriting-wise, songwriting-wise, it's badass, but sonically, it's a really even album and you can crank it up and it sounds great. I remember listening to records that were coming out around the time, like uh, the Black Crows, Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. And there were albums from uh, Alice in Chains that were coming out. And, you know, those are two drastically different bands, but right in between those, you had this, this album that just it sounds so good cranked up. And again, that's probably due to the production by Bob Ezrin, uh, but well-executed, well-written album. And I was, I embraced it. I thought, here we go. This is the kiss that I remember and, that, and the kiss that I missed for you know, the last few years prior to this record. Yeah, I think also another thing that stood out for me right away was the album cover artwork. This was um, far and away, it was the darkest, uh, in terms of color palette, it was the darkest Kiss album ever since the debut, because um, they generally, you know, most of their records are a real splash of color. This is kind of like a darkened chrome. And one thing I had completely forgotten is that the art director for this album is Hugh Syme, who was famous for doing all of Rush's records. So it's really, really dark and kind of foreboding, but it's very, very artistic. And so it was, and again, I feel like the the album cover absolutely matches the record that's inside it. And it was one more thing that worked for it right away. Yeah, and the album cover being sort of the metal hull of some kind of ship or plane that has the the KISS logo on it and then is damaged by bullet holes kind of plays upon the whole idea that KISS and KISS fans are a band that have been assaulted by their enemies, by the critics, by the doubters, and yet they are still surviving up until this point and now seeking revenge for these perceived slights. Yeah, wow. Interesting point though, there, was there ever a song that was written with the title of Revenge uh, planned for this record? No, right? Not that, not to my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Rye, do you have any thoughts about the album in general? Uh, yes, I do, because it was a very important time, uh, you know, for me musically, because I was in college and I just met you, Dave, at USC. And uh, my first KISS concert, I'm a little different than you guys probably, my first KISS show ever was 1990 Hot in the Shade, which I went to on a whim, actually, because my, my friend Elliot, and he was super into KISS, and we're like, KISS is coming, you know? Where was it? Long Beach, I believe, I think. Yeah. And it's like, uh, we got to go, man. We got to go. So we bought tickets like two weeks before and it was like the greatest show I ever saw, you know. So I was really into that. In high school, I was kind of into smashes, thrashes and hits. So I kind of went into the old Kiss. I had the Kiss cards when I was a kid. So I didn't really, uh, you know, tell you the truth, I wasn't really into Kiss music. Um, you know, until maybe Crazy Nights, I saw their video. Um, here on the West Coast, I guess we were into all kinds of crap. We were into MTV, whatever MTV played. But back to Revenge, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was trying to be a bass player, guitar player. So Kiss really spoke to me, you know, like, you know, live your dreams and, you know, and, uh, you know, you got to believe in yourself. Uh, like God gave rock and roll to you, so that's that's true there. And uh, but um, I looked at the uh, you know the inside cover. I got my old CD out. I mean they look pretty badass, you know. Remember the uh, 
black back with the black leather no more uh day glow colors here so yeah uh, they finally found a look that was comfortable i think for the entire band and, and kind of looked unified yeah and gene looks like uh you know he got something back i'm gonna you know quit hollywood and uh, i'm gonna be a rock star again and uh you know the unholy video uh proved that that he looked like some guy from slayer or something unified's a good word yeah yeah um, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about just in general what was going on behind the scenes during this whole period with Eric Carr's health. Um, they didn't realize it at the time, but he was essentially dying from cancer. And so he appears on the album singing on God Gave Rock and Roll to You and obviously in Car Jam. But at the time, uh, they had employed Eric Singer as a temporary drummer. Uh, to play on the album and he would later become a permanent member when Eric Carr passed away. Um, you know, a thought I had listening to the, the sonics of this album is that I think there was probably a conversation between Gene and Paul and Bob about how they wanted this record to sound. And I think they said, we love you as a songwriter, but we don't want a big grandiose washed out album where the guitars and the vocals are swimming in reverb in, in the same way that they are on Destroyer, right? We don't, mm -hmm. we're not making a, an opera or a Broadway show here. We want you to produce this album as if you were Eddie Kramer sonically, but with the songwriting ability and the arrangement ability of a Bob Ezrin. And I think that's what they did. I remember them talking about the fact that they consciously decided that there should be no fade outs on the record at all. Mm. And the thinking was, uh, if we ever play any of these songs live, we have to come up with an ending anyhow. So we might as well take the time and the creativity and invest in making sure every one of these songs has a hard ending. And the only one that doesn't is God Gave Rock and Roll to You Too, which mm. is probably because it was done first when it was just an individual song. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a back to basic sound that's absolutely huge because it's Bob Ezrin. So they basically like, it sounds like a million dollars, but it also sounds like the best, you know, like, but it also sounds very, very direct. And, and, and I don't know if raw is the right word because it's, you know, it's, but it's, it's direct and it's, um, again, it, it just circles right back to the whole, you know, statement of intent thing where this is us going back to what we were founded upon, which was just heavy, heavy rock. It also sounds like it was recorded to a click track. All these tracks are mm -hmm. right on the beat. There's not a lot of swinging or tempo fluctuations going on here. Um, I think that was probably a conscious choice at the time as well. Which might owe a bit to, uh, to Eric Singer's drumming because he kind of has a, a feel that is that, that falls in line with that you know he's a very you know on the beat drummer i think and i think that might be you know part of the reason for that as well even so though i feel like they're playing to a click mm. because if you compare this to say sonic boom or mm. monster there's even though he's still got a great meter there's a little bit more tempo fluctuation going on there i agree so all right should we get into track yes. by track unholy uh okay so this is again um 
this that riff that opening riff i couldn't believe it had come out of the kiss that i had listened to in the 80s um it's super i mean that uh, yeah it's one of the it's one of the greatest kiss songs i think ever um and it definitely plays to gene's uh um demon you know persona but it also i mean you know you send to your children to war to, for bastards and whores i mean it's it's like where were you during the 80s gene these are great and i don't know what the actual songwriting credits are for it i assume it's mostly gene i'd like to pretend it's mostly gene. it is yeah it's, a it's, very it's, very surprising co-conspirator has oh and it's vinnie vincent yeah okay so huh well i still like it i mean it still is definitely heavy as all all hell and it definitely brought me back now um, back into liking Kiss. There's there's really nothing I can say about it. It's I mean it does at the time I remember hearing it and thinking oh this is this is Kiss going Alice in Chains and you know grunge and being informed by like you know thrash metal and things like that. But still thinking like wow this is a pretty badass song. I mean the way that you know Gene's lyrics are really on point. Um, which I, you know what I mean, in the way that it's delivered. I mean, it's like a perfect song. It's like one of the best things to come out of that whole, you know, since Crazy Nights. Um, it really is a standout song. There were a couple things that really stand out to me about this song. Um, first is that I believe this is the first time that a Gene Simmons song ever started a Kiss album. Um, every single song album before it was, it was always a Paul Stanley song. And secondly, on top of that, this is the first song that started a Kiss album that was in a minor key. So those are two absolutely huge changes right there. And it's, it just throws you right from the beginning, but in a really good way. And I think in terms of just talking about, and, and I think that is in many ways, Paul, um, this is Paul basically acknowledging that Gene has basically come back into the fold. And I remember very, um, you know, they, they made an appearance on uh, Headbangers Ball right before the album came out when Ricky Rackman was hosting. And I remember there was just, I, I, I practically dropped my beer on the floor at the time because I was watching it at a friend's house. Um, Gene looked right into the camera, you know, wearing all the black leather get up and he said, listen, I want to apologize for my lack of effort and my lack of full participation in this band for the last few years, I was concentrating on other things and I didn't treat this band or the fans with the respect that they deserve. And I am deeply, deeply sorry for that. And I hope that this album goes a long way towards making up for that and showing that I'm back. And I was like, whoa, because you, you could see like, I mean, Gene, you know, there's a lot of bluster that always comes from Gene, but you could see this time he meant it. And uh, it was really, really impressive. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I agreed with John, it is a signature Gene Simmons song. I think somebody said it before, it's a statement of intent. I think the album started that way for me. There was something that was dark and foreboding and it reminded me of Gene of old. And it was a, it was a welcome, it was a welcome aspect to Gene that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. At least since, you know, look it up in, in revenge. Certainly Vinny, you know, was, there was an element there and get him out of the way. Um, but I think this had more to do with, Vin, with Gene's attitude than it did bringing in Vinny as a co-writer on this particular song. This, Gene delivered this song. Uh, you listen to his vocal on this, this was menacing. It was dark. He was delivering a message. I think for him, he was making a statement right, literally right out of the gate. I'm Gene Simmons. I'm a member of this band. I'm back. And I want everybody to know it, including my band members. 
and I think he did a fantastic job with it. I think it was a great way to open the record. One thing I wanted to point out is the the opening sounds similar to the opening to The Elder with the, you know, I mean, in The Elder, it's the train coming in and his, it's sort of like a vamped up guitar strum or whatever, but it still has the same sort of evil, menacing feel to it. No, it's okay. It was just, it's just an ominous opening. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say about it, it was the other aspect of this song that was just the hint of what was to come on the rest of the record is, is Bruce's guitar playing. You know, this was, this was a new, to me, a new element to Bruce's guitar playing that was refreshing. It was different than we'd heard from, in my opinion, the Bruce, although Bruce had his moments, trust me. And I think we've already talked about a few of those songs uh, since I've been a guest. Um, but there's something about just, and I know this is probably Bob Ezrin pushing him, but there was an aggression an angst. There was a, a, a there was just a, an attitude in his playing that really began to come through for me, beginning with this this particular track. Well, the story goes that Bob Ezrin went up to Bruce at the beginning of the album and said, "Listen, this album needs to have really." ballsy, aggressive lead guitars, nothing fancy, nothing pretty. We need a guitar player who can play from his crotch. And personally, I don't think you're the guy. I don't think you can do it. And that lit a fire under Bruce's ass to really rethink his whole approach. You know, if, if there's one criticism you could have of Bruce's guitar playing on the albums up until this point, it's very polite mm -hmm. guitar playing it's very you know it's like there's a knock on your door and you answer it and bruce comes in and he says hello i'm mr kulik i'll be your lead guitarist for this song and now i'm going to do all the things that the lead guitar should do thank you very much and now i'll be leaving and and you're right it's rude and it's aggressive and it's nasty and um and the guitar tone that bob Ezrin gave him is nothing short of amazing that's it perfect I, I agree, and also too with, with Bruce and his playing. I think I, I read something recently where he said that uh, you know before this um, he was in the position of okay, I'm not going to be the guy you know to tell the band what to do. These guys are established, but in this case he had some ideas and some pushback, and he decided okay, now I'm going to give you know my opinion on how things should go. Um, but also too, in terms of the tones, you know I've been around him a couple of times in conversations, and we've spoken about you know guitar tones, and he definitely searches for tone. I mean that's the, the never-ending quest with guitar players. And I think it's it's also maybe a situation too where you know we've all worked with producers, engineers, and they're trying to capture a tone, and you hear it back, and it, it, you say, well, it doesn't sound like me. It doesn't sound like the amp. What's the problem there? I think in this case, it was a perfect match between you know Bob doing the, the production and Bruce, you know, finding his tone that works with Kiss, and, and he made it his own. His playing is, is really, you know, sort of a you know harkens back to you know, the, the solos that Ace would do in the old days where they, they have a signature, There's a, they have a melody to them and it works. Um, and he's definitely, just, he's, he nailed a, a great tone on this record for sure and his playing is killer. And that, that shows on every track on this record. Um, but just back to the song itself, you know, I remember buying this cassette, I think it was a Bananas Music in Edgewood, Pennsylvania at the time, I think it was in college and I put it in the car. And we mentioned that when you put the, the record on, you hear this first song, it's a great, you know, segue into the fact you've got a good record to follow. Um, and some of the things that stood out for me in this song straight away were uh, like, you know, sort of the, the, the B flat in the, that's over the G in, in the verse, which is, you know, something that they did in She on earlier records. 
Um, there's also the sort of, you know, like um, half step, you know, uh, chord changes that were, you know, signature of Vinnie Vincent's songwriting. Uh, but, you know, and, and again, a killer vocal by Gene, especially that last scream at the end, it's amazing. Um, and I just appreciate, appreciate the fact that you have, you know, here's a band that has multiple players now. You've got Gene writing with Vinnie and, you know, Bruce, who's the current guitar player in the band, but he's playing over a song, you know, that Vinnie wrote. Interesting to have that many layers of, of different Kiss eras working on the same song. You know, it, it just you know, shows to go that the song is the most important thing and whoever's involved and who writes it, you know, might be sometimes irrelevant, but if that, if that works and there's a chemistry there, then it comes across in, in a great opening tune like this one. Ryan? Yeah, looking back on my notes, I definitely echoed some of the same sentiments. Um, you know, I was definitely thinking about the first thing I did think about was the Headbangers Ball, the world premiere. I was there that night. I remember where I was, what couch I was sitting on. It brought me back. What a good song does, right? It teleports you right back in time. And I knew it's, it all came back like it was yesterday. Um, you know, of course, it's it's powerful. It's it's dirty, it's uh, gritty. I think that even the video was black and white, right? I don't think there was any color in it, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, it's just kind of like a war machine type song maybe. It was just like, you know, powerful and just, you know, like like Jeet said, I'm back and I'm here to kick ass now. And that's, I, I wrote Scream at End because he goes, yeah, I don't know how he does that. It just sounds like he's just, his throat's just getting shredded. So if nothing else, hear that scream again at the very end. I, I never heard Gene sound quite like that. Somewhere there's a French reel of outtakes of him trying that about 50 times. Oh yeah. <laughs> Probably. Lyrically, this, this whole thematic subject matter about man's potential capacity for evil, um, and his tendency to blame it on outside forces as an excuse, the idea that the devil made me do it. This is the first time we hear this idea from him, uh, but he, he'll return to it again in Hate, on Carnival of Souls, on The Devil Is Me. And Incubus, um, I, I Lay the Egg in You. On Monster. Yeah, um, I, I think some of the lyrics, especially today, seem especially prescient. I'm the infection and famine knocking at your door um, mm -hmm. seems especially relevant. Um, mm -hmm. You know, John, that line that you mentioned, you've sent your children to war to serve bastards and whores. Yeah, that's some like, that's some war pigs type stuff right there. I mean, that's, that definitely elevates that album or that song to like, one of the best they've ever done. On a totally different subject, I, I can't stand the fact that all these metal bands that do these anti-war songs are the first people to get in line whenever there's a U.S. military action and blindly, unquestioningly supporting it no matter what. But but <laughs> the fact that they did this was, uh, you know, definitely something that we hadn't seen from them uh, before. Um, you know, if there's a criticism I have of the song, it is that the third verse sort of seems like an afterthought. It's kind of a metal cliche to play upon the now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Um, I notice on the demo, Bruce just kind of keeps soloing over that part and there aren't any lyrics. Mm. So I feel like they, they just kind of threw it in at the end as kind of a filler. And the other criticism I kind of have of the song is that there's 
an imperfect relationship between the verses and the chorus. You're talking about being unholy, feeling unholy, I'm unholy. Is it from the perspective of the devil, but the devil is man? It, it's not. Well, the, okay. Hmm. So this is one of the thematic things that hit me about this album is the fact that one, Gene is Jewish, but there is a lot of sort of, I would argue Judeo-Christian or really Christian views on this album. It's almost as if, and so I think he's talking about the way in, in Unholy, because I thought the same thing. And then also in the song, Thou Shalt Not, and there's a couple other songs and lines that Gene delivers that are very sort of like, you know, generic, not generic, but sort of Christian, you know, kind of ideals. And I see it as him saying, we are all evil. We all have the capacity for this. You know, you send your children to war, meaning us, we do, you know, um, and I'm unholy, you're unholy, you know. Okay, but to say I'm the infection and famine knocking right. at your door, that's not man. That's perhaps the pressures that are on man that cause him to act in desperate ways and be inhuman towards his fellow man. But again, as a metaphor, it's imperfect. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, that works. Okay, you're right. I'm, look, dude, it's like the best song coming out of Kiss in years. So I'm just like, I'll take anything uh -huh. at that point. I'm like, oh my God, this is so, you're a freaking poet, Gene. You're back, man. So I hear what you're saying. I, I know that it's, it can be seen as like a lot of, I mean, that's always sort of my problem. A, a lot of times Kiss tends to be general in their delivery because they don't necessarily want to take a side. You know, like the, and I noticed that more on my list of all hell's breaking loose from Lick It Up. They never really say like, what's breaking loose you know what i mean like are we it's there's a revolution but which one <laughs> you know like what should we be thinking you know and what is your opinion on the matter you know and so they always sort and that's that you know that's what makes a good song is the universal become or the yeah the universal becomes personal and all that kind of stuff but it's it's kiss has always kind of done that they never actually you know sit down and tell you how it is they're not going to get up there like bob dylan and Right. Okay, so next song, Paul Stanley does some writing with Kane Roberts, who is known for working with Alice Cooper, and I think is actually an underrated songwriter himself. Um, this is kind of Paul's take on girls, 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 right? It's the uh, strippers, the solution to and cause of many a young rocker's problems. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's I it's it's to me it's a little disappointing because it comes right after Unholy. You know, I wanted I wanted them to do something a little more interesting. It's a pretty standard Kiss song. It's not bad. Again, it's to go back to my metaphor of the Kiss blender. They put all the right stuff in there, and it comes out to be a good song. But you know, this came out when I was ninety two, so I'm twenty one, twenty two years old. I'm in college learning about the male gaze and getting woke. And I'm like, I don't know if I could really get behind a song about strippers right now. I mean, you know, so it's, it sort of was a little disappointing. Was it not even like a little, it felt a little generic, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I felt like they were, they started so strongly and then it just kind of petered out there, pun intended. That very, very first few chords, it just, the song gets off to an amazing start, but then I feel like overall, this is just kind of a misfire. I think that, again, I think it's, it's, 
you know, very clearly inspired by girls, 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 but I think it just says, it just, it strikes me as just kind of, it feels like just forced and obvious. I'm not wild about some of the chord changes. And I think it's just, um, how can I say this? If you're gonna write about strippers, you need to do it pretty artistically. If you're not girls, girl, if it's not girls, girls, girls. And so for me, like the standard for this is Cherry by UFO from the mids from the late seventies. And I think it just, um, for the most part, I feel like strip club songs have largely become the, um, it's become a hip hop thing right now. And this one just, this song never did it for me. Put some sugar on me. Right, yeah, exactly. What are, Cherry pie. Where's that Spotify list of strip club songs? <laughs> Not that I would know from experience. Uh, right, right, yeah, exactly. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't hate the song, but I think it's interesting because I've heard it several times now, how, you know, Kiss, you know, was stealing or borrowing from Motley Crue. It's just an interesting relationship, kind of an incestuous relationship between those two bands because Motley Crue did so much mining of Kiss's material and image of their own you know, um, that now Kiss is, you know, uh, is, is doing the same thing to Motley Crue. Um, it, it's, just an inter it's just an interesting relationship between those two bands. If you talk to Nikki Six, like I have, uh, privately, he can't, he says he can't stand them. But I, and you point out to Nikki Six, well, you stole this, 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 and this, and this from the band. He'll admit, he'll readily admit that they did. You know, it's just, it's an inter and then listen to, to Kiss in private, their feelings about Motley Crue or, they're pretty outspoken, believe it or not, about their dislike for Motley Crue. I think they're all full of shit, by the way. I think they all steal from each other, and and I think that's a compliment uh, go, going both ways to me. Um, <laughs> putting your grown-up hat on. But, you know, the song, you're right. You know, the lyrics are cheesy. You know, it, you know it, it's very contrived. You know, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's another Formula Paul song. I don't dislike the song. You know, I love the production of the song. I still love the strong parts of, you know, I like Bruce's guitar playing in the song. Um, but it is not one of the stand the most standout moments on the record, but it's not entirely a letdown either. Right. It's that, I'm telling you, man, it's that Kiss Blender. They just know how to write a good song, even <laughs> if it's totally contrived and cliched. You're just like, still rocks. I'm still screaming, take it off. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Paul gives his uh, like five second, yeah scream at the beginning which he's used on uh, psycho circus now and and say yeah and so paul likes yeah was that the first time he used yeah like that in a song on a record i don't know i think so yeah, yeah, so, yeah I think he, you're right that's uh paul's uh one of paul's staples now you know there's a couple of good lyrics nothing to lose but my money and my mind that sounds like a rap lyric huh? Uh, yeah, I like the uh, I like the bridge. You know, it's kind of a slow dance. The strippers can you know take a little break and uh, slow dance and uh, gyrate a little bit. And uh, you know, I think I what was like Kiss Confidential. I don't know if I if they did it in San Bernardino when I saw them. Did they bring a bunch of strippers out on stage? I don't know. It was kind of like I don't remember. <laughs> I know in Kiss Confidential, the video. I'm pretty sure they brought out a lot of strippers and. You know, who doesn't want to see strippers on stage? Although now I don't think that would fly as in titty bar. I don't think you can say titty bar anymore. Though I just did. <laughs> uh, you call it adult establishment, but we can't even go now because of the pandemic. So what the hell? I, that occurs to me sometimes. I feel bad for the strippers. <laughs> must be wrong. Well, they're actually, they're doing stuff online. They're doing yeah. like, you know, paid Zoom 
performances and stuff. Yeah, really, that's um, I read a whole article about it. Jumbo's Clown Room. These girls are making you know bank doing this, so okay. they're okay. They're okay. Yeah, and I think Paul does the yeah at the end too. I wrote in my notes, so he that's the birth of the yeah movement. <laughs> as we call it so you know it's uh, of course molly crew i think will always have the greatest stripper song and uh i couldn't really think of too many others so thanks for those other tips i gotta check that out those other ones out but uh you know it's an okay song paul says uh-huh a lot which kind of i don't know it kind of bothered me a little bit you know your man's getting dirty about 11 30 uh-huh <laughs> and the next line uh-huh okay just my little little take on it Again, yeah, I think it, there's nothing on this song that, that Motley Crue hadn't done. It's, uh, the tuning of the guitar is a whole step down and, and the lyric, um, you know, it's, it's a little cheese ball lyric wise, um, you know, but again, a, a great performance by the band overall, including Paul's vocals and Bruce's guitar playing. Um, you know, and I think to answer Ryan's question about the tour and, and, and the presentation of this song, I think on the majority of the tour, they did uh, invite uh, and solicit strippers to, you know, to come on stage during this song, which I personally thought that was the last thing I wanted to see when I was at a Kiss show. I want to see Kiss play. I don't want to see yeah. somebody sort of you know, riding the coattails of my heroes. You know, I don't think they needed that. I don't think that served the song or the band in any way. You know, and mm -hmm. this is, you know, a guy that, you know, Dave, when you were convincing me years ago to move to Los Angeles and, and form a band with you, you know, there were a million things that we were talking about, you know, doing and I, I thought this all sounds great. But then when I finally came out and visited you and went to the Hollywood to go, I thought, oh, okay. Now I, I see, you know, where this where this can go. And they can be an inspiration, but they don't need to be part of the show or part of the band. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, I don't hate this song as much as you guys do. <laughs> I think when when Paul tries to do something specific like do his take on girls girls Go girls or i think the song jungle is kind of his take on welcome to the jungle mm -hmm. i think he does it with a certain degree of integrity and he's able to find a certain truth that the other songs that he's imitating hint at but don't quite get to right so in the case of the song jungle he's exploring well how is hollywood and the streets like a jungle right? Who are the predators? Who are the lions? Who is the prey? That's something Guns N' Roses doesn't really touch on or get into in the mm -hmm. song Welcome to the Jungle. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love the song Girls, 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 it's kind of the glamorized take on strip clubs, right? We're talking, oh, menage a trois in Paris, France, and, you know, the marble arch and the crazy horse. And I've been to the crazy horse in Paris, France, and that place was... <laughs> Two drink minimum, the cheapest drinks were $20 each in 1989, right? It was so upscale. I guarantee you the average young rocker was not getting involved in any menage a trois by going there. I'm sure Motley Crue was, but, you know, Paul's, Paul's writing much more from the perspective of the average Joe. In fact, one of the lines is, old Nancy. Um, I want to watch old Nancy shake it to the noise the boys are making, right, at the local titty bar. So he's kind of in some ways stripping away the glamour. He's not saying that there was some young, hot vixen. He's talking about a stripper who's maybe been added a little too long, who's maybe seen better days, but she's conveying a fantasy, and to a certain degree he's buying it, but on another level he realizes 
it's far from the truth, it's an act, and he's okay with that. The other thing that we should mention before we move on is that's Kevin Valentine on the drums, so doing a great job. All right, Tough Love. I actually think this should have been the second song on the record. I like it much better than Take It Off. Um, I think it just, um, it is, I think to, to kind of take, you know, to use John's term, it is, this. The, a lot of the standard Kiss ingredients are here, um, but I think it's it's a successful you know it's a successful blending of the usual ingredients or, or ingredients pardon me and um, you've also got um, the first Bruce Kulick songwriting credit on the record as well uh, this is a three way this is a three writers you've got Paul Bruce and Bob Ezrin um, contributed to write this one and I think that this is. Um, like this should have been the second song on the record. I like it again. Again, it goes into this weird metal BDSM underground that I never understand. Like, if you're going to be, like, down with this stuff and I want, like, a full album about it, like, I want to know, are you really that serious into it or are you just, like, aping somebody's, some poor pervert's fetish that you discovered online or, well, in their case, you know, at the newsstand. Um, it's, I like the riff, the do, 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 tough. You know, it sounds like old kiss to me. Sounds even like a sort of Ace Frehley kind of riff to it, even though it's a Bruce Kulick uh, writing credit. Um, and I mean, I even like Paul's, you know, I want to take you down. You know what I mean? That sounds very sort of 90s metal, but it definitely, he pulls it off really well. It sounds really good. So I give it, I give it, you know, again, not the greatest song. Again, want things to be, you know, again, still looking for something that touches unholy, you know what I mean? That comes up with, that keeps with sort of the thematic thing that I was hoping for on the album, but never really, uh, not even sure that I really get in the album, but still not a bad song. Again, Kiss Blender, all the parts are there. It's good. Well, I wrote uh, Kulik Rips on it. Uh, definitely, I think Bruce is really, uh, you know, stands out on this album with all his guitar work. Uh, you know, I hear things, I keep hearing things, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's just metal, guitar, you know, Bruce got balls, you know, for this, he definitely rose to the challenge. Um, I've, I wasn't completely sold with the chorus when they shout, you know, gimme, you know, tough, and he goes, love, you know. Yeah, that to me sounds like Paul probably had a melody to sing on top of that, and they dropped it and they just left it that way. And I, I, I agree with you 100%. I don't think it pays off. Yeah, it seems a little uh, haphazard, maybe. I think I thought I heard a little, there's a cool little drum part in it. Da -da 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 -da. I thought that was reminding me of uh, something from Love Gun or something. Um, basically, yeah, I mentioned the bridge a little bit. I like the way, uh, I think the bridge is all really kind of you know, do their job. They kind of change the pace of the flow of the song and give you something out of left field, kind of make you, uh, you know, breaks up the monotony of it, but not not too many notes for this song. To me, I could kind of, uh, I mean, it's a cool, cool music-wise. The rest of it, I could kind of take it or leave it, I guess. You know, I can't add any more than what was just said. Yeah, this song is, you know, it, it's, it's got a lot of elements that, that I, I can't appreciate, but the chorus is utterly forgettable to me, or the lack thereof. And, you know, it just, yeah. it, it had a particular buildup that didn't, didn't pay off when it got to the chorus. Not the first song, you know, that Paul has done, you know, in the 80s and early 90s that, 
we had that particular issue and this is just another one. Um, I, I can live without this track. Um, when I first heard the riff at the beginning of the song, I straight away thought of uh, the breakdown and, and the bridge in White Snake Still of the Night. I thought, well, I've heard that riff before and where'd that come from? And, and I thought about, you know, maybe that might be an influence on this song, which is a great riff either way. Um, and in terms of guitar playing, there's a lot of great guitar interplay in what I call the pre-chorus, which is, you know, I want to take you, maybe going to make you, give me, you know, the guitars are kind of panning left and right, which is really cool. Uh, but I also agree that, you know, if you're going to go down the path of, of S&M as the theme of the lyric, you need a, a stronger payoff in terms of the chorus. Right, yeah, tough love, come on, what a cliche for some Yeah, I mean, you know, this is 1990, what, 91, 92, they could have, like you said, there, there might be some other you know lyric that might have been used or in place as a placeholder and they you know, neglected that, but either way, that to me is the most disappointing part of the song, which is the chorus, which really should be the biggest payoff. Yeah. Right, they're getting S&M courses at college. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the verses, I think, are strong. There's an interesting Spanish Spanish music influence going on throughout this song that I think makes it have a great deal of potential. And we haven't really seen that in Kiss music before. But again, I agree with you guys. The chorus doesn't, doesn't work. So, spit. The attitude is there and the intent is there. But for me, overall, it just feels a little bit off. Um, the one thing that I really do like about this song is that it is a co-write with Paul Stanley and all of a sudden, very unexpectedly, Paul comes screaming in, you know, at the first big break. That's the part of this that I really, really like, but um, don't mean spit to me. I mean, you know, they, 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 they should have had the dirty version of this record where they should have used the word shit. Well, to steal a line from a show that was popular about that time um, in Living Color, hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> done. Well played. Well played. Next. <laughs> okay. If the previous record was a bunch of covers of you know um, metal bands of the time, from Def Leppard to Motley Crue, this one is a cover of a Led Zeppelin song. It's know. a kind of. It's halfway between a whole lot of Rosie and I want a whole lot of love. Right. I want a whole lot of woman. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It definitely is kind of boring, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I. <laughs> You know, that chorus, I want a whole lot of woman. You know, I mean, I, I still kind of enjoyed it, but you know, no, it's not It's not anything that I'll pick out to play ever again. First thing I noticed, uh, they uh, lyric-wise, I believe they stole from Spinal Tap. The bigger the cushion, the better the cushion. <laughs> yes, they wow. did, which is, is like, come on, guys, you're in the studio for a year. We know Gene saw the movie. Like, where's the quality control yeah. that says we shouldn't use an exact Spinal Tap lyric? Right, so he stole from Spinal Tap, and I think he stole from himself and never too young to die, got no manners and not too clean, and you know, he said something like that, right? He also used it on, um, yeah. what was it, Fits Like a Glove? Yeah, but I think in this yeah. song too, it sound, sounded kind of like that to me. Um, there's a little cool interplay between Paul and Gene, I like, you know, like vocally. Um, uh, Gene kind of almost scats a little bit when he goes like a did it a did it or yeah like, he does some scat vocals which are never a good thing in the kiss song. yeah let's say uh bob ezra said uh gene cut that out now i did like i noticed they do a little star spangled banner in the solo a little homage maybe to hendrix yeah that was mm -hmm. cool so i like to hear the little things like that um 
But oh, and uh, also Gene goes, take it, Bruce, which I thought was cool because, hey, give Bruce a little uh, credit here. You know, let's uh, give him a little shout out. That that could either go either way. If you like Bruce, then it's a good thing. If you if you don't, then but Bruce gets uh, a little shout out there. So uh, but spit, I don't like to think I mean, Gene Simmons spits blood. So uh, I was thinking of that. But here, like Andrew said, yeah, just call it shit. So we might have missed the point, too. I think I read something where Gene said, you know, he was thinking of uh, the term, you know, swapping spit, you know, and that might have been a point of reference for, you know, how to come up with a, you know, a title for the song. Um, but, you know, to, to me, you know, love Gene or hate Gene, I listen to the song and I, I'm entertained by it. I kind of crack up. You know, one of my favorite records from the 70s is you know, Steve Martin, Wild and Crazy Guy. I love that record. And when I hear this song, it makes me just, I, I mean, it's almost like I'm watching a comedy show. Like, I can't believe, you know, that somebody has the position in life to be able to write a song like this and execute it that way. And I, I'll never be that way. And thank goodness for Gene Simmons and for him to do that because you're not going to get that these days. You know, this is a moment in time. And I, 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 I enjoy it. As silly as it could be in a lot of places, I enjoy the song. And I think, you know, one of the things that also makes me smile as well is, you know, Ryan, like you said, when he says, you know, take it, Bruce. It's, you know, Bruce isn't like, you know, the, the coolest name in the world, <laughs> yeah. but he sells it, you know? And it was like a spur of the moment thing in the studio and, and, and Ezra just, you know, captured and said, that's part of the thing later, who knows? But, you know, Bruce is screaming on guitar on, on this record and, and on this solo as well. I mean, you know, for what it is, it's, it's a song, you know, that Gene only, I think only Gene could write and, you know, good for him being in that position to be able to do that. The thing that I do like about this song is from a certain context, there's several songs on this album that can kind of be seen as a criticism of what America and American values consider desirable in a female mate, right? I mean, the, the, the ideal is she should be young, she should be thin, and she should be relatively sexually inexperienced, right? That's, that's what we're all looking for, the, you know, close, as close to virginal and thin and young as possible. And I think Kiss in these songs is saying, well, we've had every type of woman and that's not what we like. And they're, they're questioning that, right? It's not the 19-year-old stripper, it's old Nancy that is making Paul go to the strip club. It's the fat girl that Jean is turned on by. And it's the girl who ain't the Virgin Mary that is obsessing Jean. Yeah, and on that subject, you know, you know, sometimes if you want to call it love or true love or lust or whatever, you know, it's, it's not an image, you know, it's something else. It's, it's a chemistry and, you know, to, to each his own in that regard. Okay, so God gave rock and roll to you too. You know, I love this song when it came out for a lot of reasons. One, I, you know, I begin with the interplay between Gene and Paul, the, the, the co-vocal, the playoff on the vocal. You know, it harkens back to, you know, those days in the 70s, you know, and shout out loud. And, and uh, I really enjoy when Paul and Gene uh, do a song together. And, and it, it had been a while, right? You know, since they had actually done a song where the two of them shared uh, a vocal at least traded lines. And, you know, so I did, I like that. I, you know, I, and I'm a fan of, of some of the older mm -hmm. stuff. I call it the older stuff, um, you know, the T-Rex, 
type of material and David Bowie and Martha Hoople. And, you know, those elements are clearly obviously there. I think what initially started out as a, a Russ Ballard, you know, Arjun song, if memory serves. And, you know, there's that whole kind of that, that, that hallmark of that David Bowie kind of uh, mm -hmm. all the young dudes, you know, the intro to all the young dudes that is there. Those elements are there. And I, and I really like that. I, I love the harmonies in the song. I will say, you know, I, it, the song, over the course of time hasn't held up to me uh, to me personally the way it did influence me or I felt about it when it first came out but it was all those individual elements that I really appreciated in the song and certainly the musicianship was there you know that's a song to me that you can listen you can play that for somebody and I and I'm not throwing my wife under the bus cuz she's probably on the other side of the door but my wife is four and a half years older than me she grew up as a as a person who hated kiss yeah, she's from a small town in Wisconsin. She was really into America, into David Bowie. And, and those are fantastic, great bands, by the way. I love them all. But this is a song that I could play for a fan like that, somebody who didn't really know who Kiss was, and feel like they can get something out of it and appreciate them, not just for the three-chord thing that people perceive Kiss to be at times and the makeup and the bombast and all that. There was so much going on between the vocals and the musicianship and the actual song itself that really it was it was a to me it was a shining moment at the time for them and i think it still is i have a very complex relationship with this song um it is um i i will acknowledge it is it is a beautifully crafted song um it's it's in many ways it's a masterpiece and it remains very very popular with a lot of people um i also understand that it, it also resonates with a lot of people that um, that that are, that have very strong Christian faith, um, and you know, Kiss still uses it as their as the the lights on music now. But having said that, this tune drives me up the freaking wall, man. This is the most. There are lots of there's lots of great Christian faith based music out there. I mean, like After Forever by Black Sabbath, the entire First Trouble record, a lot of early U two, a bunch of Peter Gabriel stuff. But for me, this is just a cloying saccharine take uh, um, on, 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 you know, faith-based rock. And it just, I've never, ever liked this song. It just has rubbed me the wrong way from day one. Even listening to it this week in preparation for today, I felt like I had to go out and like play the first side of the first Mer Merciful Fate record to restore the feng shui in the house afterward. Um, this one is just, I know it's a great song, but I've just, maybe I've just listened to too much satanic heavy metal <laughs> over the years, but this song just does not do it for me. It never has, and it never will. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. I did not like the song when it came out um, because I found it saccharine and cloying and all the words you use, which are, I don't think I've heard the word cloying used in a sentence in a long time. So thanks, Andrew. It's awesome. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't like it when it came out. Yeah. I find it, I found it kind of non-kissish. I found it, a little bit cheesy and it wasn't until re-listening to this album uh just this week that i was like oh there is a heck of a lot of stuff going on in this song that i didn't even think about and again at this time you know this is i'm 21 22 i'm you know i'm down with kill your idols at this point and find it ridiculous that someone would tell me to put my faith in a loud guitar when you know whatever and then now that i listen to it i'm like yeah yeah that's really that's really moving you know yeah i did put my faith in a loud guitar even though you know at the time when the song came out i wouldn't have said it would have been it wasn't going to be bruce kulik's guitar um 
but you know, yeah, like I, I really, upon re-listening to it, uh, like you said, it's, it's an incredibly complicated structured song with really actually kind of good inspirational lyrics um, that aren't as terrible as I think I thought they were when it first came out. Like I just found it, um, I just found it completely cheesy, you know? I was like, how is this on the same album as Unholy? You know what I mean? Like it just didn't make any sense to me. But now listening to it, I realized that it's a very well-constructed song. It may not fit in the same, you know, Bane as Unholy. And it definitely is a, it's it's the black sheep of the album to me. You know what I mean? In terms of the fact that it doesn't, doesn't really fit with the rest of the album. Um, <laughs> and then I remember thinking when I heard it was covered by, Ar you know, covered from a song by Argent, I was like, Argent? You know what I mean? Like I just, there's, like when it first came out, I hated it. Now I've, I actually have come around to it and realized that it's a really well-constructed song. The interplay of the vocalists, even putting Eric Carr in there to sing, you know, and the, um, yeah, the way that it's built. I think, aren't they, I was reading up on it and apparently this is their hardest song to play live, they say. Is that, uh, did anybody else hear that as well? Bruce Kulik, I think, has said that it's it's probably their most complex song to pull off live. Right, yeah, because it's got a lot of things going on in it. So definitely, definitely a turnaround from what I used to think of it. Yeah, I always liked this song. Um, I like, you know, like the power of rock and roll, believe in yourself, uh, you know, very inspiring. When I was, you know, that young, I, you know, nothing else I wanted to do, but you know, play guitar and be inspired. So it's almost Kiss, it's almost like Kiss telling you, well, just pick up that guitar, work hard and a little, you know, a little luck, you can be rock stars like us, you know, you can just, just be positive. Yeah, but I think everybody here, sorry to interrupt, but everybody here at one point is trying, is, I mean, we're all still trying to make it as rock stars, right? Even every single one of us is probably is in some sort of band um, or some sort of way. Are you, Andrew, are you in it? I'm not, no, I never got a chance to even fail before I quit. <laughs> oh, so it's it's definitely funny to listen to the song now. I mean, at, at 50, where I've been in, you know, at least eight or nine bands that have, you know, maybe one or two that have even flirted with success and feel like, well, I guess I still have my faith in a loud guitar. Uh, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I'm still inspired when I hear it. I'm like, whoa, I wonder what my guitar's doing. Maybe I should go pay it a visit, you know? And uh, so it does still definitely have that... Uh, you know, you you know, you get your starry eyes and you start dreaming how you know how great you know an electric guitar is and stuff. And uh, you know, it's never too late to work nine to five. Uh, you know, it's just you know, it's an inspiring thing. You know, of course, I think of Bill and Ted Part Two because this song actually united the whole world and saved the world at the end. If you recall that, uh, just one song can do that. You know. That's the message of all the Bill and Ted movies, I guess. If you can just have one song in you and the whole world saved. Um, so yeah, I like the, I like Bruce's guitars. Um, I know there's one part where it's just kind of all of them harmonizing, which is one guitar, I think. I thought that was kind of unique, you know, just all their voices kind of in harmony. So definitely thought they tried some good stuff and they proved that they were, you know, more talented than a lot of people might think with this song. Yeah, I've got a lot of positive uh, takeaways from this song. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, Kiss, um, if they're going to, you know, do a song, if you want to call it a cover song, and, and, and Ace has probably done this more so than, you know, than you know, the entire Kiss band has, but when they take on a song that somebody else's, you know, or has another origin or another, you know, writer, they make it their own. Um, 
And I think there's a lot of things in this song that embrace a lot of the things that uh, Kiss is about, that, that, that are sort of underappreciated and also things that are either appreciated or underappreciated about their work with Bob Ezrin. I mean, you've got this really killer intro that, you know, sounds similar to like the intro of Only You, you know, which is you know, probably you know, a lot of Kiss fans' least favorite album, The Elder. It's a great intro. Um, and it's my understanding that the intro on the Bill and Ted soundtrack um, is missing. I guess there's, there, it was edited. There's a different version on, on the soundtrack, which might be a whole other. There's actually three different versions of this song. There's, there's okay. the song as it appears in the actual movie, where there's a whole lead guitar intro to the song that I think might be done by Steve Vai, but somebody of that ilk. Okay, and then there's an outro to that version of the song in which there's a gang chorus of people singing it in the movie. And then oh. there's the version that made it to the soundtrack for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And then there's the version on Revenge. Okay, thank you. Okay, that clarifies. Thank you so much. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the more positive qualities about the song, I mean, you know, the things to, to embrace is you've got, you know, the intro that sounds like something that could have been from the Elder, and you've got all the harmony guitars, which is something that they really introduced, you know, in my opinion, on, you know, Kiss uh, Destroyer with uh, Destroyer X City, which is one of the best Kiss songs you know, ever. Um, and that, you know, sort of pulls from, from that influence as well. Um, you know, and, and the lyrics, uh, you know, are, you know, they're really positive, and Paul's vocal delivery is kick-ass. Um, but I also like the fact that you have two different things. You've got, you know, there's obviously organized religion and there's Kiss. And I like that I can go and listen to a Kiss record and I don't feel like I'm being introduced to organized religion, you know. And at the same time, too, I've, you know, I went to a Catholic school. I've seen a lot of hymnals. I've read a lot of, you know, Bible passages. But nowhere in there was, you know, you know, if you're tired and wishing on a falling star, you got to put your faith in, in a loud guitar. Well, by all means, you know, that's great. You know, I mean. It's a gift. Rock and roll is a gift. And, you know, if you want to work hard and you know, you've got to sweat and that's true. Any, any ounce of success that any of us have had uh, in terms of being a musician and playing in bands has come from hard work. You know, it, it doesn't just come to you. It doesn't just, you know, fall from the sky and a great song lands in your lap and a good band, you know, just falls together. It just doesn't, it doesn't go that way. And, you know, good for me, I, this is almost like, that's one of the songs that I can really personally relate to in a way in terms of inspiration. I think it just shows that you can have an established artist who has a successful career for a number of years and they come across and they tell you, hey, you know, don't forget, you know, God gave rock and roll to you and don't ever forget that. I, I love it. It's a, to me, it's a great song. It's one of the shining moments on the record. Yeah, I always it always worked for me. I always felt like they took the cover and they made it their own. Um, you know, the, the whole attitude of the song is, is very much a kiss attitude. In some ways, it's it's a cousin to On the Eighth Day. Um, I only have two very minor criticisms of the song. I think the dual vocals with Gene and Paul are great, but I wish that I wish that they had been balanced in the way that they're projected because Paul at this point is singing straight from his diaphragm and he's projecting at like, you know, 90 dB and Gene is kind of belting it out from his throat and the two just never sound completely balanced to me. Um, Maybe that was something Bob Ezrin could have done a little bit better. I always thought that the speech Paul Stanley comes in at the very end and he says, we have been given a gift. We have been given a road is a little odd. A road? Like, okay, how about a roll? And that roll's name is rock and roll. Like, not a road. I mean, you could say it's a road, but, what, you know, I don't know. I thought that was a missed opportunity for a better lyric. And he could have also said a path, you know, that might have been a little more general or, you know, appropriate, but, you know, a road, yeah, I agree, I, I agree. 
Can I, can I bring up one? This is a sort of an engineer's point of view. I have a question for you guys. Uh, let me see the lyric here. Okay, I think it's the last uh, verse. Uh, you can work real hard to just fantasize, uh, but you don't start living until you realize. And then they be, right before the, I got to tell you, put on headphones. There's an additional sort of like two-syllable lyric that's happening behind there. And almost, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm into, you know, backwards massing and, you know, subliminal messages and stuff. But I swear to God, there's something in there that sounds like, do it which is would be like more of an inspirational kind of thing like if you're ever questioning you know that you should be a guitar player write songs then you know listen to it and you guys later on tell me if you hear the same thing that i'm hearing there's definitely something there whether or not you know it's a do it lyric or whatever it is i hear something that sort of is in the background there that, that you know, stands out to me interesting you know the other thing about that is even though the lyrics are in the original argent song i think it takes on a different context with the lyrical rewrites of the kiss song the uh the line save rock and roll i always thought was an interesting line because to me it felt like them passing the torch to the you know to us to the next generation of young rock musicians and you know, the, the funny thing is, okay, maybe none of us have achieved any success on the level of a, a band like KISS, but is there any one of us that if we could go back and not do it, we would ch choose not to do it? I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the philosophy of be, getting old, is you suddenly realize that it's not the destination, it's the it's the trip. I mean, we've all got crazy, awesome, funny stories that we can shut an entire party down telling because of the goofy things we've done to try and succeed. You know what I mean? And and so it's, yeah, no, it's definitely, I would definitely do it all over again, but it's just funny that um, I would, you know what I mean? I sometimes find it funny <laughs> these sort of like, you too can be a rock star. It's like, no, no, you can't. But what's even, well, never mind. What's even more interesting is my my son has no desire to be a rock star, has no interest in it at all. Well, part of it, though, is because at the time we were growing up, there were a dozen arena-level bands that were putting out albums every year. There were another two dozen bands that were playing on the level of theaters. So even though it was, at best, a remote possibility, it was a possibility. I mean, there's not a whole lot of young, up-and-coming rock bands that are achieving any level of success these days it, it, it's it's funny david you say that and like in terms of like up and coming bands and immediately i was taken back to to the, to the old city limits club at penn hills when like the the local band asgard would be able to pack the place with their own fans enough that they would win any battle of the bands contest that ever happened there yeah. holy shit city limits we went to see a couple thrash bands at City Limits where they, they this is a total tangent, but they, they put barbed wire along the front of the stage and they had acetylene torches that they were lighting. Right, and the lead singer came out with the torch and the guy running the show was like, so, so don't get on, don't go to the stage. Okay, this is like real barbed wire, don't go up on the stage. They're like, okay, oh. see you again, a great story. <laughs> Which now I think it's it's a Rite Aid drugstore, right? Yeah, it is. It is yeah. a Rite Aid. Domino. John uh, I, I, you would imagine that I would not like this song because it's uh, amazingly sexist. But actually, I kind of like it a lot. Um, I'm sort of fascinated by why he chooses the word Domino. Um, 
Does he mean the domino sugar? Does he mean the domino that falls? Um, which I think is actually kind of clever and like the kind of kiss that I like, the sort of weird double entendre, triple entendre, where do you get that title from? Um, You know, the ridiculous big bopper, I got a man-sized problem. You know, I mean, it's it's, (laughs) it's goofy fun. I love it. I love the song a lot. So I got nothing nothing else to say about it. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not what I'm going to play for like, you know, people I'm trying to introduce to Kiss, but I've always liked it. And it's isn't it a mainstay on most of their live shows now? Like they pretty much do it all the time, right? They they haven't done it for a while, actually. Yeah, on the on the Revenge tour they did it. Um, it's funny this song and Take It Off at a certain point were the number one and number two songs in the strip clubs in America, and Bob Ezrin was quite proud of that fact. Um, nice. Um, yeah, uh, I I like the song a lot. I mean, like I said, it's it's perfect, goofy, fun. Um, again, you know, it's at the time, 21, 22, and, you know, knee-deep in feminist and Marxist theory in all of my classes. I'm like, I don't know, guys. But deep down inside, I'm like, yep, when she bends over, I forget my name. <laughs> so, yeah, I like it. Yeah, I always thought the song was uh, a good addition on, on the, one of the stronger songs on the album. Uh, I did, uh, you know, remember I did, they did a video for the song and I remember, you know, Gene's getting gas and he's putting in his, uh, you know, car, uh, you know, gas hose in his car looking at a hot chick. And, you know, there's you know, some, you know, like you said, it's uh, today, uh, I think it would uh, wouldn't be good. Just if Gene put this song out today, uh, probably probably get a lot of protesters. Uh, uh, yeah, some of the lyrics are like, "She ain't old enough to vote." Uh, so, and I thought it didn't Gene have uh, at least uh, one kid at this point, and and uh, he's the sugar daddy. I kept thinking, uh, oh, I don't know if Shannon would like these lyrics too much, uh, even though I don't think they were married at the time. Uh, but uh, what, I, what I did notice again was the very end. I think there's a cool little whammy bar uh, and feedback at the very end, right? Which I thought was cool, hearing like a whammy bar on a Kiss record. I don't know if I, I mean, at the very end like that with a bunch of feedback, I thought that was cool for like a little, you know, little thing. And Gene does his owls and his, uh, says damn twice, damn, that bitch bends over and couple cool little E slides, which I like to hear Gene do in his little bass fills. So I uh, think a pretty strong song from Gene at this point. I, I sort of view this in the same way that I viewed, um, you know, the song Spit. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's funny, it's comedy, but at the same time, uh, we should point out, um, th- there's a similar riff, or there was a riff that was used in the uh, Black and Blue song, Nasty Nasty, right? Which is similar yes. to the verse. Uh, so interesting to know that Gene recycles risk. We, we've spoken about it before. Yeah, um, and I believe there's a song on that same album called "Kiss of Death," which yes, there's a lyric in this song called "Kiss of Death." So yeah, but you know, but you know, for for those of us that live in Los Angeles, we know there's you know between you know donut shops um, and taco stands and liquor stores and strip bars, there's no lack of any of those in anybody's neighborhood where you live. 
Um, you know, and, and I remember hearing stories about you know, people seeing guys like David Lee Roth at you know places like Crazy Girls. So to me, it wouldn't be out of the question for Gene Simmons or you know or Paul, you know, in the case of other songs in this record, to have visited some of these establishments. Um, so I would like to think that if you're going to write a song like this, then there's probably a side of that you know that comes from you know personal experience, um, and, and you know I, I can I can appreciate that you know and again and too, you know. There are very few people in the form of the and you know, hats off to Gene for being in that position because you know it's not going to happen for the rest of us. And I, I, I just I appreciate it, and I kind of I'm humored by it, but I'm definitely entertained by it. And it, it's a well-written song, from you know from top to bottom. So you can, you know, can't dispute that. Um, but but also last point too on Ryan's thing, absolutely Ryan. At the end, Bruce does this thing where he goes like from an A down to like a lower octave A, similar to what they did at the end of uh, uh, the Boston song "Don't Look Back." You know, it's a really cool approach um, in terms of using a tremolo bar and trying to keep it in pitch when you're making that sort of long, you know, octave uh, dive bomb. As a fan of Gene, somebody who, who did root for him, even in the 80s, wanting to hear Gene again, the Gene that I fell in love with in the, in the 70s, certainly, there, there, was, there, was a, I, there was a certain amount of pride and pleasure that I had of listening to the radio and hearing not one, but two Gene Simmons songs that were singles from that album. And, and, and to me, at that point in history, or history in this case, when was the last time you heard Gene's song mm -hmm. become a lead yeah. single? Or an album opener? It never happened before the album opener, but, but it's been since I Love It Loud, right? I Love It Loud. So it's been nearly a decade since Gene, a Gene song had been a single, yeah. and now he's got two songs at least in my neck of the woods in Las Vegas, that um, not only did he have Unholy, I think was the lead single, but then he followed that up with another Gene song. And as again, as a fan, I, 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 you know what? I saluted him. I thought he did a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Made me very, very happy to be a fan at that point in time. I think um, as far as the non-makeup era of Gene Simmons songs go. I think this is definitely, from a music bed standpoint, absolutely one of the best ones. An absolutely slamming music bed to this song all the way through. I love it. Um, lyrically, um, I, like, I think it was, uh, it, it, just to echo, I think it was uh, John's point was saying like, uh, Domino is always kind of, has always struck me as kind of a strange name. It's probably, I'm guessing maybe it might've been some, a, a dancer's pseudonym, but honestly, like when, like for, for the longest time, when I would think that here Domino, I'd immediately think, I wonder if Domino has like a sister with a lot of piercings whose name is Cribbage, you know, it just, you know, it just, um, it just, it's such just a weird name, but um as far as and as far as the, the lyrics go, yeah, I think this is one that um, it doesn't pass. Like I like to call it the grandma test. I mean, both of my grandmothers have unfortunately passed on, but this is not a song that I would have played for either one of them. Um, and so it's um, you know they could change a word or two, and it would probably be a little more palatable. But yeah, like the uh, the old enough to vote thing that doesn't fly. I I, I don't even think that flew in 1992. Um, and you know, it's, but nonetheless, it's, it is a really, really strong song. I absolutely love the music bed again. And it is, um, very rarely it is, it is Gene Simmons is the sole writer on this. You don't see very many soul, like one person write the song or, or when you do, it's usually Paul Stanley, but I think it is, um, 
it's absolutely one of the like for me one of the four standout tracks on the record um mm -hmm. i understand that you know i will acknowledge that god gave rock and roll to you is a fifth excellent track but it's just you know i like like i said before i have a complex relationship with that one but i do think this was um just a really really um it's a strong song and it does a really really nice job of wrapping up side one to me the name was always kind of probably a play on dominatrix she's clearly the dominant one in this relationship and gene would actually go on to create a comic book called dominatrix so you know that might have possibly been what he was thinking about um the early verses are really interesting to me when he says um never had confession never had a home to me that's him talking as a jewish man right he's they don't have confession. They are wandering around in the desert historically being chased by pharaohs. They are not, you know, they are the people without a home, or at least until Israel was established. And I think that that is something that he's consciously playing upon as, as a Jewish man there. Um, lyrically, she's a bad habit that's good, good, good always stuck out to me it's like we can't do anything with that like we can't that sugar good that's so damn good that i mean they're in the studio for a year and they just that's that's it i you know i don't know that that seems like a creative failure to me um i think the video is probably the only subtle kiss video ever made i think it's actually really an interesting video because in some ways it's kind of a satire of american life right he's the big rock star cruising down sunset boulevard in his old souped up sports car and what happens to him he gets pulled over by the police tries to get some food and it's this horrible smelling fast food that's going to kill him there's extreme poverty he runs into a homeless guy that he gives money to he goes to get gas and ends up being rejected by a woman the other thing is you know these guys gene and paul at this point they're 40 40 odd years old at this point i remember paul was had just turned 40 and he said hey if this is 40 give me 40 more i think there's a certain they're at a certain midlife crisis point in their lives where they are increasingly able to see that the type of women that are enjoying their company are viewing those relationships in a purely transactional manner right gene realizes that he is this girl's sugar daddy and then we'll get into heart of chrome you know women that w are significantly younger than them and want to spend time with them are seeing them as resources that can be exploited whether it's a singer actress dancer it's all about what they can do for them and i think there's a, a consciousness of that on this album in domino and the next song heart of chrome All right, Heart of Chrome. Paul has his lane, right? You know, it's songs that he kind of write, love gun and all, all that. But um, 
you know, this song for me, um, it's probably my favorite song on the album. You know, I mean, I and I, I met, I mean, I, I you know, the, the the perspective of you know, Paul's got his lane and Love Gun, and I take that back to the earlier track of Take It Off, right? That that's kind of you know, Paul's little his his cliches he lives in, so to speak. But Heart of Chrome was was a nice change of pace for me. I like the song. I think the playing was outstanding. Um, I, I like the way Paul delivers the song as far as the vocals concerned. It's different than some of the other subject matter that, you know, the way Paul delivers, you know, those, those double entendre songs that he likes to do. I know this song is maybe, you know, maybe in that, in that line a little bit, but it, it's far enough removed for me to make it refreshing as a Paul song. And I love the playing in the song. My favorite song of Paul's on this album by far. The bass is turned up in a lot of these songs. And it's one of the first Kiss albums in a while where you can hear the actual stuff that Gene is playing. And he's playing a lot of glissendos, you know, and things like that. Nothing real flashy, but um, it's still cool. Well, who, who sold the story to the BBC? That is the goddamn weirdest lyric I've ever heard in a song ever in the history of listening to Kisses. And then you turn and then you sold your story to this BBC. Like, is this referencing an actual person or something that happened to Paul? Is he getting singer-songwriting around us, or is this just something that rhymes? I wondered about that for years, because it is an oddly specific line. You taped our sexy conversations and sold them to the BBC for a Kiss song. Um, I, I finally found an interview where somebody asked Paul about that, and he claims no, uh, he just made it up for the song. But regardless of whether or not that specific thing happened to him, and I haven't been able to find in my research that it actually did, certainly there were probably similar betrayals by other women that he was dating at that time. Yeah, I understand. I just, that, that is, um, it's not a bad song. I like it a lot. Again, it's got a cool riff to it. And that, that lyric is, is uh, freaking, you know, stygian and it's you know uh how occultish how you figure out what it means because i've been i've wondered that since i heard it in 91 and 92 you know what i mean like i can't figure that out and it's uh but it's a good song although i had trouble realizing um you know it does again that's interesting that it's one of your favorites because it doesn't stand out to me that much it's a, definitely a strong song on the album but it still doesn't stand out as like one of the better ones to me yeah, pretty cool title, Heart of Chrome. I can, first thing I think about is I think about a nice robot. They're kind of making it in Japan right now for like 50,000 bucks. But uh, anyway, um, the first thing I wrote, you probably can't see it, but I said, BBC, question mark, who's mm. girl? And I'm going to take a guess here. I think it was Samantha Fox because I think dated Samantha Fox and uh, here she's a little crazy and she's English. So who else is Paul dated that's from the UK? I don't know, just a wild guess. But uh, regardless, you know, I thought it maybe harkened back to I Stole Your Love a little bit. I was trying to tie it back to, you know, when Paul, I was trying to think of other songs that Paul wrote where he, he says, you did me wrong woman because some woman ticked off poor Paul. Um, I like the uh, I like the part where Gene goes, you know, you told me lies, but I, that kind of reminded me a little bit of, uh, of Pink Floyd, The Wall, for some reason. Remind me of a Bob Ezrin kind of kind of stamp there. Um, it's again, I wrote drums after solo. 
that kind of reminded me of Love Gun a little bit. I like those little fills that Eric Singer does here. Although it's, you know, it is sad about Eric Carr because that was a pretty big passing. He died on the same day as Freddie Mercury and was kind of overshadowed a little bit. So anyway, it's an okay song, not one of my favorites, but uh, I guess one I would listen to, uh, you know, every time I play the album, I wouldn't skip over it. I like the fact that, you know, if you listen to Paul's vocals, um, he sounds like he's connected to the song. He sounds upset. I see that as, you know, as a genuine approach to, as, a, as a vocalist. You know, not one of my favorite songs on the record and definitely not a song that is easily a song that would, you know, be like a sing-along in a live performance situation. Um, but I also think that, you know, too, you can, you can try too hard with the chorus and, and, and add too many layers. And, you know, we're, you know it's, it's hard to sink your teeth into, you know, to the chorus. It's, you know, it's interesting and it's clever and it's complex and it's different. But at the same time, too, it's, it's you know, it's just not something that it's easy to, you know, to, to absorb and, and find yourself in. But I, I, I like the passion that I hear in Paul's voice in delivering the stories. And it seems to me that, you know, if it was a personal experience, then he's trying to relate that and it comes across that way. It is one of my favorite songs on the album. I agree with you, Dave. Um, but I, I take your point about the chorus. Um, I love that main riff, the kind of the calls and response to itself. It's almost like a James Bond, like heavy metal spy thriller theme or something. It's got such a great attitude to it. The verses kind of owe a little bit to Cat Scratch Fever, but it does an interesting play on it. But the chorus, the background vocals kind of mirror the implied melody of the riff. And so I can see why they would think that just leaving that by itself might sound a little empty and why Paul would want to put something mm. on top. But it just feels like the vocal part that he puts on top is too complex and you, you can't really concentrate simultaneously on what the background vocals are saying and what he's saying. And I don't know if it, it maybe if he could have simplified that part or left it out or left some of it out to, to let the background vocals breathe a little more. But I, I think you're right. It's just, it's too busy. And, you know, that fill that you mentioned, Ryan, that did it, did it, is cool. I don't like the way Paul mirrors it exactly with his yeah. vocals. It feels a little forced to me that give it to me, give it to me. It's like, you know, like I could have dealt with that being once in halftime, not, oh, not oh, okay. mirroring it exactly. <laughs> but but overall, I saw Bruce Kulik play the song live at the Cat Club and it sounded great. It kicked ass, so. Okay, great, cool. All right, Thou Shalt Not. Not one of my, my favorites, but it is kind of interesting. I was thinking uh, what, uh, what kind of, I guess, record producer or guy would, uh, I can imagine Gene sitting there and says, Gene, you got to do this and you got to do that and don't do what you did there. And I can just imagine being a fly on the wall and hearing some uh, producer, you know, try to uh, deflate Gene's ego here. Uh, once again, the Thou Shalt Not chorus kind of was like the uh, Tough Love chorus for me. It was a little, uh, I don't know, Thou Shalt Not, Thou Shalt Not. Uh, I don't know, I got mixed feelings about it. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, 
not much to say. I thought it was a little repetitive. Um, at the end, uh, Gene does a little got that right, uh, which is a little interesting. Um, I don't know. I kind of got mixed feelings about the whole song, but, you know, musically and Bruce's solo is strong. I mean, all of Bruce's playing on this album is something to hear. So I'm sure I could find something. I, oh, and in his solo, Bruce does a little classical uh classical homage i don't know if someone could tell me who that classical composer was in there is it edvard greek is it Mountain yeah Mountain? it might be a hall the mountain yeah yeah that's cool so i like to hear little things like that in songs that surprise me so uh interesting song i don't know uh if i would uh skip it though next time i, I can't hear it too much so i don't know um, I think musically it's it's a strong track. Um, and I, I didn't realize this until uh, recently where I guess uh, Gene was thinking about trying to write a song that sounded similar to um, a song that Humble Pie covered, which is uh, I Don't Need No Doctor with that bomb, bomb, bomb kind of riff, you know, which is strong as all hell. Um, and at the same time too, I don't really, you know, listen to, to music to, you know, to look for guidance on either politics or religion, but I wouldn't be surprised if Gene encountered, you know, some, some people in his early uh, youth or even later on with, you know, when Kiss was going through uh, the struggles of, you know, them being, you know, branded as, you know, knights in state and service around the time of creatures. Um, but to me, I see it as almost like a, a true sentiment from Gene, like, you know, if he's going to do something, he's going to question something, then he wears it on his sleeve. And I, I can appreciate that. Uh, but to the point, too, of, you know, going back to the, you know, the other song, you know, Tough Love, whereas that song didn't really deliver on the level of a, of a chorus. You know, here's Gene saying, you know, he's being told, you know, thou shalt not, but, you know, he's saying, but I know what I want, but I, I know what I need in response. So there's, there's a cool, you know, give and take and interplay there that, that I can appreciate. Um, I don't mind the song at all. I think it's, you know, of the, of the Gene songs on this record, I think it's one of the stronger ones, you know, but none of those are going to knock Unholy, you know, out of the, out of the top rank in that regard. I like it. I think it's got some, it's, it's a strong Gene track to me. I like the way the song, the energy of the song, the way it drives. Um, is it the best best song on the record? No, but you know what? It, it's again this 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 thing is just a reminder. This song reminds me that Gene was the star of this record, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And even his weaker tracks are stronger than Paul's tracks, in my opinion, on this record. And which is a complete 180 from what we'd seen throughout the previous 10 years. I this is actually funnily enough, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. <laughs> Um, but that's because I like the sort of like, I'm going to live my life and I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm not going to kiss your ring. Even that, I mean, any lyric that starts with, I lived most of my life in New York City, born and raised in the promised land. You know, I mean, as cliched as that is, it always gets me in the gut. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, you know, this is, um, but I like the, um, I love the lyrical content for it. You know what I mean? Like talking about see again though i'll see you in hell and um again a lot of christian imagery for someone that is jewish um but you know i mean it is it's the predominant american culture you know what i mean in terms of like where he would get his reference from it or whatever but um the song drives really well he really delivers the lyrics like he just i mean that's one of the things about him in this album like you said davis he just this is his show. You know what I mean? He really stands out here and he really drives and he really, you know, is back. He's really delivering what he's supposed to deliver. Even if it's something as ridiculous as Domino, but at least he does it with so much conviction that you can't not love it. 
This song reminds me there is a story, a folktale that Joseph Campbell talks about how the, the young person in the village is sort of born as a noble savage, right? And as he's growing up, he is given a bunch of scales that weigh him down, that tell him how society is supposed to be. And those, those scales are called thou shalts or thou shalt nots. And so he has to learn the rules of society in order to function as an adult. But then once he becomes an adult, he confronts a dragon and the scales on the dragon are thou shalt and thou shalt not. And he has to figure out which of society's values are still useful and which of society's values can be discarded in order to slay that dragon. And in that way, every individual helps society move forward because society's values are constantly changing and evolving. And I think that's kind of what Gene is getting to on this track. Um, it's weird to me though that lyrically he says, you know, I spent most of my life in New York City. Why not just say I grew up in New York City? Uh, and he says, born and raised in the promised land. Well, he wasn't born in New York City. He was born in Israel. He could, you know, he could say, I was raised in the promised land. It's sort of oddly wrong, you know, <laughs> if he's if it's meant to be purely autobiographical. Um I, I do think that, that th there is a problem with the chorus in terms of it is ostensibly the preacher who is saying thou shalt not. And he's saying, but, but, but why not make the chorus work from it being one person's perspective, him talking to the preacher like the rest of the song is and saying thou shalt not tell me how to live. Thou shalt not tell me who I am. You know, that to me is a much stronger chorus idea than two conflicting voices contradicting each other at the same time. Um, there's a second version of this song that Mike, you and I heard, and I'm trying to think where we heard this, uh, that has alternate lyrics. Instead of uh, the Inquisition, they say this ain't the wheel of fortune. Was there like a Bruce Kulik guitar camp that we went to where he played that version of the song? You know, I think there was. I don't recall where that where that was. Oh, um, oh, doggone! Because it wasn't at that California Quakes game in Rancho Cucamonga. No, there was some place where he did this, and it wasn't at the uh, the, the Kiss conventions in '95 either. I, I don't remember. Yeah, I mean that version exists on YouTube. You can find it. Um, Thou shalt not with alternate lyrics, but the it's it's not that well. Uh, recorded or the audio quality is okay. not that great. So, you know, you, you can make out some of the lyric changes, but some of it's really hard to to parse. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember, I remember, definitely remember seeing that and hearing that because he was playing along to like a backing track or almost like an MP3 player or something. Yeah, where the hell were we when we ah, saw that? Yeah, too many Kiss experiences to recall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Every time I look at you, uh, you know, from top to bottom, it's it's a well-written song, an extremely well-written song. And it's a great vocal performance by Paul Stanley. Um, but I think this is another one of those cases where there are songs that are written, you know, in, in years previous, and this, you know, reminds me of the Black Crows. Uh, she talks to angels uh, in a way that might be, you know, too much. <laughs> uh, it, 
you know, it's it's one thing to be influenced by a song, or, you know, be inspired by a song or wanted to write a song, you know, like, you know, one that somebody else wrote. But to me, it just, I could never get away from the fact that it's a great Paul Stanley song. Um, it's well recorded and it's arranged you know, amazingly. But, you know, I always kind of thought I was hearing another version of the Black Crows, She Talks to Angels, even down to the, you know, the sort of, you know, back and forth chord changes and the harmonics in between the chord changes. You know, I mean, great song, <laughs> killer song. Not, I'm not taking anything away from that, but I can never escape that. That was always in the back of my mind that, you know, that this sounded like a song by another band that, that had come out, you know, a few years previous. Uh, two words here, chick song. This is the song to make to make the girls <laughs> feel loved. And it's, you know, it's about, you know, falling in love and, you know, will it work? And uh, Paul gets all sentimental, sentimental and heartfelt and, Definitely a good performance. I thought I heard some strings in there that makes it a little more sappy, sweet. And you know, I was wondering why, you know, Forever was a big hit, right? That was like their biggest hit since bed. This one, I don't think this thing even made a rumble on the charts, did it? I, I mean, so how could they go from Forever to all that success to this? No. And it was kind of like a Big step down, although I thought it was a well-performed song and definitely a way to break up the heaviness on the album. So, uh, but I definitely think they failed if they were trying to get another uh, Forever on their hands. I mean, I, it's it's interesting, Ryan. You said that uh, why did Forever become such a hit and this didn't, and it's because Forever is just better. I mean, there's just more to it uh, in terms of at least in my opinion. But yeah. Um, I'm sorry, that came out as me like lecturing you on why a song is good or bad. No, it's not, I'm just saying my reasoning <laughs> yes. behind it is saying that I think that this song just is lacking. It seems very, very, very generic. You know what I mean? Whereas Forever was a little bit generic, but still had some cool stuff in it like that acoustic guitar solo and some other stuff in it that sort of made it stand out a little bit better. Um, Cause yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. This is actually, I hate that because what I was doing is, um, you know, I, I, whenever the way that I listen to these albums are, is I work out every day and I have about an hour or whatever. And so I was finding that I had to keep pushing further and further into the album because by the time this song came on, I would just be checked out. I wouldn't be paying attention to the album anymore, particularly with this song. And so I found that like on Friday and Saturday, I had to start with this song to make sure I actually heard it and wrote something down about it. You know what I mean? And that kind of stuff, because it just does not, it literally is just in one ear and out the other. There's nothing here that grabs me. No, I, I agree with that. You know, I mean, the irony is, is uh, when I first met my wife, it was about that time. And um, she had this song as a single. So going through, you know, it, you know, her, her musical taste, I guess, at the time, that was one that kind of took me by surprise. She'd already told me she was a basically self-professed Kiss hater. Um, I found it ironic she had that, but I liked it. But I think it was it was part of the formula. I think uh, like going back to Beth uh, and the follow up to that on the next album was Hard Luck Woman. You know, we're going to get that ballad in there. We want that radio play, I think. But it was a safety valve for them in, in a way to, to include that track as part of the formula. You know, a ballad. It's a great song. It's well played, but um, yeah, safe, nice for a housewife, I guess. But as a kids fan, I could, you know, I could do without it. 
Yeah, I mean, as well-performed as it is, it is kind of the obligatory paint-by-numbers ballad that checks all the boxes. I mean, Dick Wagner does the mm -hmm. solo. That's interesting. We should mention that. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things lyrically that I, I do think are a little bit more interesting than the completely average generic ballad. Um, I, I talked about how, in some ways, this is kind of a midlife crisis uh, album for the band in terms of where Gene and Paul are at. And I, I think of the, the whole, the line, baby, I tried to make it, I just got lost along the way, is very much in keeping with, uh, who is it, Virgil, that gets lost in, in and goes in hell, yeah. Um, and it's kind of also about the band and its relationship to the fans because they felt like they had been lost musically mm. in the last several albums. Um, I also like I, the, the idea where he says, I know I hurt you, but you can still believe in me, right? This is the second time now in a Kiss song that they've taken the attitude of self-belief and they've made it a component also of a relationship. On the last album, Gene says, um, I just want someone I can believe in. And Paul says, yeah, I fucked up, but you can believe in me. Mm. So it, it's interesting that they're, they're kind of carrying that idea forward as well. But is it that memorable a song? Not really. All right, Paralyzed. Hate it, enough said. Absolutely hate <laughs> it. The weakest song on the record, the end. <laughs> okay. I find it hard to, to find something I like about this song. It's just not, it, it's filler in a way. You know, it doesn't stand up to the other strong Gene Simmons songs that are on this record. It, it just, yeah. Musically, it's, it's, it's arranged in a great way and it works, but, you know, it's just not interesting to me at all. Um, you know, who wants to, I don't know. Lyrically, they have so many other songs that are, you know, that are so much more, you know, edgy and have such, such balls. And who wants to hear a song about, you know, Life has got me paralyzed. You know that that's not uplifting at all. You know that's not that's there's no fight behind it. There's no strength or passion behind it. It just, it kind of falls flat in that regard. Yeah, first thing I wrote, worst worst song on the album. Uh, good intro, but uh, yeah, it goes against everything that Kiss. Uh, you know, believe in yourself. I mean, thou shalt not. Now looking at thou shalt not. Yeah, that song, you know, was strong affirmation, affirming, uh, you know, I'll die, you know, I'll die first, you know, kind of, you know, F you, go to hell. This song is like, as Davey said, midlife crisis song. Gene needs Prozac or a good therapist. Um, although Bob Ezrin, <laughs> I believe, co-wrote it with him, right? I don't know if you wrote, wrote the lyrics too, but... Yeah. 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 Waiting for a heart attack. No, I don't want to wait for a heart attack. That doesn't sound cool. You know, something in my brain cold inside. Uh, um, even the uh, the bridge uh, reminded there's this, this little chatter where I think he goes not so bad or something. It's like that's that's almost like the uh, the most interesting part of the song, you know, which it's almost you know hard to decipher what they're saying. They have a great point, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, I was expecting Cher to come in there. It sounded kind of like living in sin a little bit. The way um, I thought, I, you, it, I thought Joe uh, Bruce was sounding a little bit like Joe Perry. I was kind of hearing a little bit of rocks or something. I was hearing a little Aerosmith vibe in there. Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, maybe a, a couple cool uh, bass slides and stuff, but. 
uh gene wines too much says it's all right too much uh basically just goes against everything that kiss should stand for and i don't know how this song got on the album i got nothing to add man that just about covers it ryan i i uh <laughs> the mumbly part <laughs> that was literally the only thing i wrote down is what's he saying in the mumbly parts because it is so generic yeah. i didn't even bother to try and decipher the lyrics i just had no time for it you know what i mean like that's again this is where i'm starting to check out on the uh on the album and sometimes you find your greatest songs on albums right here in the dead zone you know this the middle of side two you know but not on this isn't one of them i don't hate the song as much as you guys do i don't i i do think that that we've hit upon the point that it is about a midlife crisis, about feeling stuck in life, which is not a subject that they've written about before. So props to, you know, going somewhere new. I mean, they're in their 40s, so this is when they're going to the doctor and they're starting to hear, hey, you know, your cholesterol's a little high, uh, you gotta lose a couple of pounds. And you look at the actuary table and you go, hey, maybe I've got less years ahead of me left than I have behind me. Um, so you start to contemplate your own morality. Or mortality, but is that something that you want to write a song about? Maybe not. You yeah. know, it's it's certainly not inspiring. Um, and the the breakdown, the one line that I can make out is, I never thought it would cost so much to put an ad in the Village Voice, which is kind of a clever line uh. in a way because it's almost like saying, uh, you know it cost us a lot more to have Ace in the band than we ever <laughs> anticipated. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when, uh, yeah, because that was, that was an impact, right? You know, when Ace was, you know, sort of in and out of the band, then, you know, he was holding on to a certain amount of, you know, power in the band and that was costing him a lot of money. So great point. Yeah, I mean, I, I take your point, Ryan, the whole part about love thyself, I never could, is almost a preview of some of the sentiments expressed on Carnival of Souls. And maybe it's true that Gene is an egotist that has insecurities and beneath all his bluster has trouble loving himself, but I don't necessarily want to hear about that in a song. Yeah, maybe it's just like a grunge thing. Gene's like, oh, grunge is a new thing. We got to try to get the grunge crowd or something. What's the album? Tell me if this is true. What's the album where he says, I want to sound like that bald guy? Referring to Corrigan. That's Carnival of Souls. Okay, that's, that's the album. Uh, okay. Yeah. Referring to Billy Corrigan or whatever. Yeah. Who is someone I hate. Which is funny because I like Kiss, but I've never, I mean, I've never... Uh, I've always hated the Smashing Pumpkins with a deep, unseated, after only reading one lousy interview with the guy. I was like, your stuff is lame and you're an a-hole. So I hate you. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, they opened a kiss at some point, right? I think it was uh, Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium. Yeah. They did, and they dressed up as like the Beatles and saying like, we just want your money, which I thought was like, yeah, give me okay. your money. Give me your money. What's what's the point? Like it was kind of like a joke that was funny to them and nobody else. But yeah, okay. and I should say yeah, they meaning Smashing Pumpkins, not just Billy Corgan, but you know the band. Yeah, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. yeah, I was at that show, and, and yeah. mm -hmm. I can tell you the audience didn't catch on. 
Um, not a person standing anywhere with an earshot of me yeah. or I shot that enjoyed anything they were doing that night. Okay. Sorry. Let's go to the next song. There's something I do want to bring up. Speaking of other bands and influences and the concept of grunge and all that kind of stuff. I just want to, I freaking love this song. Uh, it's the, it's the old kiss. It's the double, uh, double, triple entendre. You know what I mean? That's really, and it's super great um, chorus, you know, that you can't get out of your head the way that I just want to foot, I just want to foot, you know, that's just hysterical to me. And then the uh, choral part, the choral arrangement in the middle of it, you know what I mean? For the bridge or whatever is so over the top that it's um, fantastic. You know what I mean? It just totally, I love it. Cause right in the solo, nothing wrong with this song. It's, I mean, yeah, I can't, you know, obviously I'm not going to win over, um, you know, certain people with this song, but I, I always liked it. I always, I always love it. It's an earworm. Um, and it's definitely my favorite Paul song on the record, far and away. You know, I, and I it just, just John said, you know, I really enjoy the arrangement. Um, I, I enjoy that breakdown. I enjoy all the vocal components of that song. I love the production of the song. I love the energy. Um, it's just a fun song. And uh, I wish they would have closed the album with it, period, with it at this point. I love it for the, you know, I quickly got over the fact that it reminded me of Summertime Blues. Uh, that, oh, you know, melodically, it's very similar. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that bothered me for a hot minute, but then once I heard Paul's vocals and yeah, I thought, okay, this is great. Uh, but also to remind me of, you know, some of the, the main reasons why I got into Kiss, which was, you know, the power in of the riff, you know, and I wanted to learn how to play this song as soon as I heard it, which is what I thought of when I first heard Kiss Alive or Kiss Alive 2. I thought, well, that's cool. I, that's a cool riff. I want to learn how to play that. Uh, but support that with, you know, uh, a well-written lyric and, and well-executed vocal on Paul's part. It, it's strong. You know, I agree. Um, you know, in a way, it's almost like the uh, all night uh, of revenge. And it should have, you know, closed out the record in a similar way. I agree. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to, I secretly am, maybe there's a small part of me that's a little embarrassed by this being my favorite song, but I don't care. Like, it just, it just stands out and it's such a strong song. Yeah, I always like this song because anytime you can... Uh... You know, I'm mostly the F word. No one's like, wait, he said it. No, no, he didn't. He said, forget. Uh, that's always a fun thing, you know, to have. Um, first thing I wrote, though, summertime blues rip. <laughs> so, but I like the summertime blues. I like the blue cheer version the best. But uh, um, I thought uh, the bridge was another one of those, uh, you know, wake up, baby, uh, kind of like a, almost like a Christmas carol, the way it sounded. Very, uh it's ridiculous. You know, uh, awesome. Yeah, so that, that was interesting. Um, and I wrote, yeah, Paul's yeah at the end. So another yeah, um, you know, impressive uh, yeah scream at the end. A uh, little crazy train, Ozzy reference there on the crazy train. Uh, I wrote a good foot stopping beat. So I love songs that make you want to, <laughs> it's got a good, makes your body want to move. Yeah, I think the song definitely works because it taps into a near universal truth, which is most straight men are not into dancing or romance and all of the things that go along with that so much as they are into having sex. And there is a certain frustration, I think, that the average American male feels with having to do certain things and put up with certain things in relationships that they themselves have very little interest in. I think it taps into that that feeling. And hell, if Paul Stanley doesn't want to dance, then <laughs> God knows I don't want to dance. Um, 
I love the I love the opposing motion guitar line that comes in into the arrangement in the later verses where it's like a climbing single note part over the over the riff. Yeah. I think that's just brilliant. Really kind of fleshes out the song for sure. Um, you know the the lines at the at, towards the end where he says, "I can see the road to ruin and I'm looking for some action." I always thought that would be so much stronger if it said, I'm cruising on the road to, or cruising on the road to ruin and I'm looking for some action. Like, why be that mm. distanced from it? Like, embrace it. I mean, yeah, you know, you can see the road to ruin over there and you're looking for some action over here. It's like, if you're going to commit mm. to it, if you're going to use that imagery, then commit to it fully. Good tune, though. A classic kiss tune, yeah, yeah. for sure. Definitely. Album closes out with Car Jam. Um, Dave, I, I, I trust from what you said earlier that you are not a fan of this being on the album. Not at all. I, I think it's a novel, uh, maybe even a sweet thought, maybe an afterthought. This would have been perfect as a bonus track on a CD single, you know, but as an album closer, I, I no, it just, it just stands out to me as kind of a, a throwaway track. Yeah, there's nothing. I, 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 it almost makes me feel bad to say that I don't like it because it's sort of their tribute to Eric Carr, and that's great. But I almost feel like there could be a better tribute to Eric Carr than a song, you know, that isn't all that amazing. You know what I mean? It's just sort of, it's just the riff. Like maybe if they took it and sampled the drum part, or you know, I don't know, donated all proceeds of the album to what did he have? Heart cancer or something? Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. Like, there's got to be some, you know what I mean? I just feel like, I know they dedicated the album to him, but it seems a little a little bit too late. Or not, almost not enough. Almost sort of, uh, I don't know. It just it just doesn't stand out for me. And then, and then you read that they pull off the Ace Frehley part and put in, um, you know, Bruce's, um, yeah, Bruce's guitar part over it, which is just basically mimicking the Ace part. I don't know. It just doesn't stand out and makes me kind of sad inside. Yeah, most of it was just, uh, you know, it was kind of like a typical concert drum solo. You know, I, I love Derek Carr. I thought, you know, he was great in the band. Um, one thing I kept thinking about is how come Eric Carr never got to sing a song on a Kiss record? I know he was a singer. I mean... Well, he did I, sing Little Caesar on Hot in the Shade. Oh, yeah. okay. I missed that. I... That's one album I don't have, actually. I mean, should I get it? You should. You should. It's, it's probably the best song on the album, actually. Okay. Well, I'm wondering, I mean, maybe he, yeah, they, I was just thinking they could have done, they could have done something better. Maybe he could, you know, if he sang a song, a little goodbye, some kind of um, something. But yeah, I just thought the drum solo was just, I mean, it sounded kind of cool, you know, kind of Zeppelin-ish. You know, I just kept thinking about breakout you know the, the the a song and i just said you know it's missing lyrics and yeah like i said it's just you know 10 years it was 10 years old at that point i believe so maybe something a little newer or just leave it off maybe i don't know i didn't think it was uh was great to have in that that light yeah i think there were definitely uh stronger tributes uh to, to eric's contributions to the band and, and to his legacy that, that they were accomplished elsewhere one of those is uh his eric's background vocals in the breakdown of god gave rock and roll to you i think that's you know you can definitely tell that somebody else singing other than gene and paul and from my uh reading that's eric carr 
Uh, but also to around the time when he passed away, I recall uh, Kiss writing a, a letter to Rolling Stone, um, you know, sort of defending Eric and, you know, just, you know, his contribution to the musical world. And I thought that was a strong statement as well. I, I just don't think that, you know, dredging up a drum solo that, you know, was maybe not hit the strongest example of Eric's playing. Um, it only reminded fans of the fact that, oh, this song later became breakout on, on one of the Ace Frehley solo albums. You know, it's to me, there were stronger things that they did you know, to support Eric's legacy um, other than just, you know, dredging up a track from, you know, years previous and, and having the album close out, you know? Okay, I'll be the contrarian here and say, I'm glad it's on the album because I think that one of Eric's strengths was uh, doing drum solos, perhaps more than any other Kiss drummer. And so the fact that we get a well-recorded example of him doing a, a solo where it's not live and we don't, we're not distracted by the crowd noises and all that on a bootleg or something, you yeah. know, I think it's valuable. I think it has a place. I think it was a nice gesture towards Eric and, is it a song that I put on and listen to like I listen to I Just Wanna or Unholy? No, but I'm kind of glad that it's there. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact, too, that they didn't try to doctor it up in terms of adding a bunch of reverb or, you know, it, it, it is what it is. You can tell that it sounds like, you know, the way it was when it was recorded, you know, in whatever year that was. The easiest thing they could have done was try to enhance it some way, make it more than, um, you know, more than being about his playing or his skills as a drummer. Yeah. So they put this album out and they do a tour. Actually, they start off with a club tour and we should probably go around and, and talk about our experiences, those of us that saw this, the, the tour and the subsequent arena tour. No, I didn't see it because this is, you know, at this point, my, um, you know, there's uh, there's not a lot of heavy metal people I'm hanging out with. You know what I mean? I'm in college at this point. We're all listening. One of the interesting things that I did when I played this album is I went out and I listened to the first Afghan Wigs album that came out at the same time to sort of like figure out what the difference between metal and uh, grunge was. Because to me, the Afghan Wigs were a metal band just with a different front man. You know what I mean? In terms of what they were talking about. Now, I wasn't even a big fan of the Afghan wigs, but they were at the time, like 92, 93, they were freaking huge. You know what I mean? You couldn't, at least in my little bubble of um, I'll turn ahead college kids or whatever. Mm. And it was the level of une uneasy delivery that the, the, the singer of the Afghan wigs gives you the vibe that he is, that he almost hates himself or is trying to come to terms with what kind of person he is. Whereas Kiss tends to be, you know, he's trying to explore the things that make him uneasy. Whereas Kiss is like, nah, F all aliens, I'm fine. You know what I mean? You know, we're, we're, the, we're the best. And although aside from Paralyzed where Gene sort of explores it, um, you know, so I don't know. So it was sort of, so yeah, I'm, I'm guessing I didn't see this tour at all. Okay. I'm guessing at this point, this is where I'm, you know, this, I, I remember this is the year that I saw, I remember one weekend I saw something like six bands in like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday based on driving to like RIT and bands in Ithaca and then bands, you know, that were playing at Cornell. And it was like uh, Living Color was one of them, uh, Urban Dance Squad, uh, Fugazi, Neil Young, Sonic Youth. These were all bands that I saw on like one uh, weekend. 
And so at this point, like, I liked this album, but I remember not, um, I don't think I purchased the album. You know what I mean? I think, or at least I didn't purchase it. Until, no, I must have purchased it because I knew everything on it. Okay. Um, but it was not something I was like advertising the fact that I was still a fan of Kiss. You know what I mean? You could, you could maybe get in cool with the college radio kids by saying you liked Iron Maiden, but nobody was going to sit around and talk about Kiss with you. You know what I mean? Um, so this was sort of a very weird time for me because I was definitely exploring like just about, you know, everything still hated the Grateful Dead would not, would not give credence to anybody that liked the Grateful Dead, but was, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, moving away from sort of my heavy metal roots into sort of more, you know, alter whatever, I hate the word alternative, but, um, you know, different punk acts and that sort of grunge sound, although I was never really that big of a grunge head, um, you know, to begin with. I mean, Mudhoney was about as far as, as deep as I went, but um, I don't know. I could go on for days about it. You know, Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction is just Led Zeppelin with more reverb. And, you know, that's really the biggest difference between them. And so to me, it always seemed like you guys were saying, these people that I was hanging with were like turning their backs on these bands. But to me, it was like, if you listen to the Afghan Wigs, it sounds a lot like a Kiss record. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways. Hmm. So I don't know. But it was just the way that the, the lyrics and so forth were being delivered. So my guess, I'm pretty sure then that I probably did not see this. I must have saw some other tour where they did Domino. Okay. Um, because you were really my only ticket to go see these shows at that point. Right. So, so Mike, what was your Kiss experience? Uh, Kiss experience for me is, um, it, it was obviously, you know, the people were turning their backs on Kiss because, you know, when I saw them on Friday, October 16th, uh, 1992 at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, I think there were maybe about 6,000 people in a, a venue that held easily 11,000. So we're talking half house, half house full um, you know, in terms of attendance. It, and it's a shame though, because you have such a strong album and the show itself was super strong. You know, the staging was amazing. The set list was kick-ass. I mean, they opened, you know, that show with Creatures of the Night. It was killer. I mean, they were, you know, they were just, you know, if you look at, you know, things like Kiss Confidential or some of the stuff that's in the Kissology box set from this tour, they were a strong band. They were tight and it came across that way. And for the people that missed out on that, they definitely missed out on something. Um, but I, one thing I remember specifically about the show is, you know, when you see Kiss or Paul Stanley, you know, solo, uh, the human being sort of quality comes out in, in sometimes and it's an unexpected way. I remember somebody throwing up some banners, you know, in the era of, you know, banners, homemade banners were being brought to the show and thrown up on stage. There were so many on the stage that Paul at one point said, ah, well, it's arts and crafts night here in Pittsburgh. You know, it's just you know, a cool way to say thank you, but you know, enough. <laughs> enough with the banners. But they, they kicked ass, I mean, It was a great, great show. Um, and if you missed it, I, I'll repeat, you, you missed out on something that was great. I mean, if you thought the Hot in the Shade tour was great, um, you, you would have thought the performance the Kiss put on, on the Revenge tour was equally, if not, you know, just as strong, if not stronger. So Ryan and I uh, went to both the club tour and to the Revenge tour. Yeah. Um, we camped out, got there really early in the morning at Ticketmaster to get tickets. They were doing two shows at the Troubadour, which if you've never been to the Troubadour, it holds maybe 230 yeah. people max. And that's stuffing everybody into the walls. <laughs> um, so we got there, we're the first people in line. Within five seconds, they had printed out four tickets. 
<laughs> well, we waited there for hours. Yes, though, we did. Right? They opened up. Two for the first night, two for the next night. And by that time, there was a long line of people behind us. And Hundreds. It was done. And we're looking at them. We have the only people to get tickets. We're holding them. And we can just sense the crowd is figuring out what has just happened. We need to run, <laughs> get in our cars, and get out of here as quickly as possible. Before No socializing. Look what we got, guys. No, we would have been dead had we mentioned we got... Yeah, we just, we just left as soon as we could. So Ryan and I go. We go to the first to the first night um and it's amazing to see a band like kiss in a club as small as the troubadour um it's just a packed wall-to-wall sea of people um amazing show the next night we feel bad for our two friends we're not going to go both nights we're like all right you guys can go the next night we'll just hang out outside the troubadour because they're playing so loud you can hear it outside <laughs> just fine you know and so we're there we're hanging out listening to the music outside halfway through the show the guy in the doorman opens the door takes pity on everybody that's outside and says come on in wow. now there is no room in this club for anybody else to enter. So we are now just, again, sandwiched in a sea of people. And I'm looking around. There's Nikki Six. There's Brian Johnson. I mean, it, it's an all star-studded affair and just as incredible as the first night. So anything you want to add to that, Ryan? Yeah, it was, it was quite the day, uh, you know. Well, getting the tickets, yeah, that was legendary. That was, you know, imagine the me, Dave getting Saturday night, me getting two Sunday nights, and then sold out. It was like, oh shit! I mean, it was just like such. I mean, my friend Elliot was behind me, and he got cut off. So, um, but we let him and Care go Sunday night. So, um, yeah, just just being there in a, a troubadour, looking at Kiss. Uh, I believe Shooting Gallery opened up, the guy from Hanoi Rocks. Uh, yeah, which is, uh, you know, who cares about them, but still. Uh, um, and then, uh, although those slight blemish, Dave, you remember, uh, we were hanging out, like Ricky Rackman was there for, for Headbangers Ball all day. And there was a, a girl with some tall, dorky guy, and he was drinking, smoking pot all day. And for some reason, I remember this, Dave, but he got he gets thrown out. Like before Kiss is goes on stage, the guy gets thrown out for being all he was all drunk and all wobbly. And he in a, a whole troubadour, he goes, This is a guy I was spent the whole day with, you know, talking to, and he was completely out of it. And he and he goes to me, he's like, dude, you you're gonna get me, you got me thrown out of here. Out of the whole troubadour, he starts blaming on me. That he got so he got 86. I think he came back though. I don't know. Maybe he got. I don't know. Did he ever come back? I don't I know. I remember that. I remember that that guy. And he was just he was just like pushing all the people around side him, trying to get up front and just really making himself obnoxious. And yeah, he was wasted and he fixated yeah. on you. And that was unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. So me, that's me. But it was a, after that, it was just like, but it was packed like sardines. And I mean, the second night, my friend, I'm um, Elliot, he got, he was on the monitors on the stage, like the whole night. He was just by taking Gene's picks off left and right and just 
you know, and uh, I was thinking also about the Arsenio Hall show. Was that the same year yeah, or was that, that for was a live same year. Yeah, right. I forgot about that one. Okay. They played uh, Deuce and Detroit Rock City. Mm. And we got to see them do the rehearsals, too. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I remember at the end, they drove off in a limousine and Gene stuck out his hand and slapped. Got a you know, high five from Gene out of the limo. And uh, so, yeah, that was some good yeah. stuff. That, that, see, back then, 92, 93, I mean, that was, you know, you know, um, Kiss Outside of Makeup. That was like a, like one of the best times for me, you know, being a young 20-something kid having rock star dreams and loving music and heavy metal and hard rock and then grunge team. Funny though about the, the Troubadour show because uh, I you know I wish I could have seen one of those shows but I found some footage about a year ago uh, they're doing it's, it's like sound check footage and they're working with you know the sound crew there and I think I don't know what's going on they're just like saying like if something doesn't sound right and what's the problem here and, and the sound and Gene you know says to the sound guy says you know what do bands do here and the guy's like what and Gene's like what do bands do here? And the guy just, you know, the, the, sound, guy, the sound guy just said, well, normally they're not this loud. <laughs> so, and that was his oh, yeah. only comeback. They were colossally loud. There's actually a, a, a oh, yeah. video bootleg of that show that I have, Mike, I can loan you. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to see that, yeah. Yeah, I know they jammed on Black Sabbath, the song Black Sabbath. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, seeing that, which was a kiss pan, the first down, down, down which is pretty cool. Good times. In terms of the actual Revenge show, um, they didn't play Greater LA. They played out in San Bernardino. Yeah. Um, this big oh, yeah. outdoor shed. I think it was... Oh, the Orange Pavilion. Yeah, the Orange Pavilion. I think it was just open seating, right? I mean, I don't think there were assigned seats. Oh, yeah. They're like bleachers in the back. Yeah. And it was it was general admission. Maybe, like you said, Mike, about 6,000 people there, tops. Okay. Um, it was so small, they couldn't even fit in the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Um, my memory of the show, I, I had a micro cassette recorder taped to the inside of my leg and I'm going through security and as I'm doing it I feel the tape giving way and this thing sliding down my leg <laughs> about to fall out and what I, what I did is I stood in between the two different security guys that were patting everybody down and each one thought that the other guy had patted me down <laughs> this thing like literally like fell out of my jean leg onto the ground and I just scooped it up and kept walking. Nobody said anything to me. So that was a beautiful moment. Oh. Um, I remember the show, it was a local band called Vesuvius that went on first. And they, they said, you know, good evening, San Berna Hooters. And you oh, know, at the, at the end of the show, they said, be sure to stick around and see Kiss. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, if you insist, you know, yeah. Trickster went on next and they were, they were okay. Yeah. Um, but Kiss did a great show, you know, for, I mean, it wasn't the best venue to see them at, but with the crowd that they had, I don't think anybody went home disappointed. I noticed Paul changed the lyrics to, and I, they played hotter than hell. And he said, uh, I knew she had to sit on my face. That's I right. thought that was a nice little uh, <laughs> variation. But uh, yeah, nothing, nothing but good memories from that show. 
um, Eric Singer, I remember, had the flu because Paul said, poor Eric Singer tonight, He's he's got the flu. He's been getting sick in buckets all night or something. Yeah. But, he's, but, but, I mean, but you couldn't tell, so I can't imagine having a fever and the flu and still playing like that for two hours. I mean, damn. No, you definitely, if, if Paul hadn't said anything, nobody would have would have noticed for sure. Yeah. Any final thoughts about revenge? Uh, it was just, it was, you know, a return to you know, the classic kiss and, and thank goodness for this record. You know, there's a lot of strong stuff on it and, um, you know, it, it's a killer listen all the way through. And it's, again, one of those records that sounds good, quiet, you know, listening to it, it sounds good cranked up in the car or in headphones. It, it's, the production's badass. Really, for me, it was your last truly great album. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I mean, during that time, I mean, Kiss could do no wrong for me. I mean, I, I love Kiss, and I kept thinking about the history of Kiss and 70s Kiss, and this was, you know, didn't really uh, know what was going to happen in the future. And, the, you know, of course, the uh, reunion happened, which is another, you know, five years of, uh, of, of you know, bliss and greatness and rock and roll for me. So it was a good time. It was a good time I had. Absolutely. I wouldn't say it's their last great album, but I'd certainly say it was their best album at the time since Lick It Up for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely a return to form and an album that you could be proud of as a Kiss fan for sure. So next week, I guess we will take an in-depth look at Kiss Alive 3. Mm -hmm.